Okay, if you would open up your Bibles, we're going to be looking at John chapter 5. We're really going to be looking at the Lord Jesus' words this morning as we look at his second recorded sermon. And in your books, this is lesson number 25. All right, John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 47. The conflict of Israel's religious rulers with the Lord Jesus over his violation of their religious rules and their traditions, which ultimately, of course, you know, led to his crucifixion. I think we can understand this conflict between the Jews and Jesus if we uh, better understand a couple reasons for why this conflict occurred. To begin with, we need to realize that Israel as a nation was held together because of her religious beliefs. Over the centuries, as army after army marched across Israel and conquered her and then deported her people people literally all over the world, it was her religion which served as the binding force to keep her people together. And that's really why uh, God... Jesus gave them the religion of Judaism to keep them together. Their belief in God called them to be a distinctive people who worship the one and only true God, while, of course, all the pagans around them, the nations around them, were worshiping all kinds of false gods. So their rules, which literally governed everything, every aspect of life, intermarriage was forbidden. Uh, Their rules regarding their worship, the Sabbath, as we've been talking about, cleansing, uh, the whole sacrificial system, what foods even to eat and not to eat, etc. All of those things protected them from being swallowed up by the pagan peoples around them. And these important <clears throat> aspects of Judaism, as I said, maintained their distinctiveness as a people. And the Jewish leaders, the religious rulers of the land, knew this. They understood this. They knew that it was important for them to oppose anyone or anything that threatened or attempted to break the laws of their religion and their Jewishness. So to their credit, many of of Israel's religious rulers over the years had been men of very, very strong conviction with regard to, to their beliefs. They became steeped in the laws and in the customs and the traditions and rituals and ceremonies and rules so that they would be the safeguards of the people and of their religion. To break any law or to break any one of the the rules regarding their belief or their practice was a serious offense because it would open the door to loose behavior, and they understood that. And, of course, loose behavior, if not kept in check, as many churches find out, will lead to the weakening of their faith and their religion. Without the binding factor of their religion, which was a God-given religion, Judaism, their identity as a people and as a nation would be threatened. So when Jesus came along and broke their rules, their rules, you notice I say, and their traditions, In their minds, he was a very serious threat, especially since the people flocked to him so much, and he he became very popular. He was weakening their religion, so they thought. Furthermore, these Jews had their positions. Now, you know, when I say Jews, I'm speaking of the religious rulers. They had their positions and their livelihoods and their security and their recognition 
uh, all wrapped up in their religion, and anyone who taught contrary to what they believed and taught was a threat to everything that they stood for and everything that they had in life. So every time Jesus broke their laws, they felt like he was undermining their very position and security, both as a nation and personally. However, there were some great errors made by these Jewish religionists, which was what Jesus was trying to get them to see. First of all, over the centuries, uh, they had... um, they, over the centuries of trying to safeguard their nation, you know, the, they were the watchdogs. Over the centuries, they had not only misinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures, the word of God, but they had actually corrupted the scriptures. They had twisted things so badly that in some instances they were actually calling good evil and evil good. <clears throat> they had allowed religion with all of their added traditions and rituals and rules to become actually more important than meeting the basic needs of human life, meaning the need for God, you know, to have a personal relationship with the living God and also the need for spiritual, mental, and physical health. Their religion had become more important than these basic needs. They had gotten to the point where they lost sight of God and they rejected his way of righteousness which is through his Messiah, his son, the promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Christ arrived on the scene, they did not even recognize him or or know him because they no longer knew who? They no longer knew God, and therefore they did not recognize his son. Being the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus had, he had to expose the errors of their ways. He had no choice about this. He had to to liberate the people from the enslaving religion that Judaism had become under the rabbis. He had to set his people free. He had to liberate his people from the system, this system that they had developed over the years so that they could be saved, truly saved. And so they could truly worship God in spirit and in truth, you know, in a spirit of freedom. And so the battle lines were drawn. The attack of the religionists, and of course this is primarily the the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, took two forms. First of all, they attempted, and we've already seen this, they attempted to discredit Jesus so that the masses would stop following him. And second, when they could never manage to discredit him because his answers to every one of their accusations, his answers were always so perfectly logical and wise and biblical and irrefutable, then they determined that they needed to find a way to slay him. And this is what we read about at the close of our lesson, our previous lesson two weeks ago. They, they not only wanted to slay him because he had violated the Sabbath, when he had healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, but when he then made the claim that he would continue to work mercifully for the benefit of men on the Sabbath, just as his father continues to work on the Sabbath, they sought the more to kill him. Why? Because he had made himself equal with God. Right. That We saw that in John 5.18. 
Although his claim was absolutely true, they labeled it as the highest form of blasphemy. Of course, what the religious leaders of Israel did not understand or even try to understand was that Jesus did not break God's laws about the Sabbath. He only broke their own man-made laws about, about the Sabbath. And in fact, he did not blaspheme God, did he? When he said, my father worketh hitherto and I work. He didn't blaspheme at all because he is indeed equal with God. He is actually the creator, not only of the universe, but of the Sabbath as well. In other words, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's what we're going to discuss further in this lesson as we look at his second recorded sermon. Here is our outline. We're going to be looking at Lord of the Sabbath part one today, and then, Lord willing, next week we will look at part two. Um, and in this study, we're going to be covering four main divisions. I won't go over those. They're in your notes on page one. But uh, first of all, we will be looking at five truths about the son's real power to defend his claim. Remember now, they have just said he blasphemed because he made himself to be equal with God. So to defend his claim of equality with God, the Lord Jesus proceeded to offer Israel five significant truths concerning himself, concerning his relationship with God, and concerning his real power. And we're going to find these truths recorded for us in John 5, verses 19 to 30. And then we're going to skip verses 31 to 39 and also look at what he says regarding this, these five significant truths in verses 40 to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to go back and look at those verses we skipped over because in those verses he gives us five testimonies to the son's royal person. And that's as far as we'll get today. Next week, we'll finish up the rest of the outline. Now, this second recorded sermon in our Life of Christ study is a sermon. I don't know that you're very familiar with it. Um, it's not as popular, as not as well-known as a sermon like the Olivet Discourse or the Sermon on the Mount. But this is such a, an important sermon in the Lord's life. It's called the Sermon on the Judgment and Resurrection Power of the Son. Now, if Jesus was not equal with God, if he was not equal with God, and if he had no intention of claiming such a thing, you know what? This right here, this would have been the most opportune time in his ministry to have denied that. You know, when they just said, you blaspheme for making yourself equal with God, he could have, he could have at this point turned to the Jews in John 5.19, and instead of reading what we do read in John 5.19, we would have read something like this. No, 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 you misunderstood me. I'm not claiming equality with God at all. I would never do that. But that's not what we read, is it? No, instead, he, he, uh, he doesn't apologize at all for how blasphemous his statement must have sounded to their ears, um, and, he, and, and he didn't deny it. Instead of a denial or an apology, instead he defended his claim to deity. And so the Sermon of John chapter 5 is a very important one for Christians to know and to be able to use with those who deny the deity 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, or even with those who claim that Jesus himself never claimed to be equal with God. Because you hear that. You even hear that in churches. Oh, Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. I beg to differ with you. Just wait till we start reading this sermon and you'll see. All right, so let's look at the five significant truths, by the way, that he tells us about here in his defense of his equality with God are that the Father loves and instructs the Son, the Father gives judgment to the Son, the Son promises everlasting life to believers, the Son predicts resurrection for all, and the Son prophesies of Israel's unbelief. We'll begin with the first one, the Father loves and instructs the Son, and for this we'll look at verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> All right, it says in verse 19, then, Jesus, then answered Jesus and said unto them, this is the Jews, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he, the Father, doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. All right, the first reason Jesus gave as proof of his equality with God was with regard to his uh, obedience. He emphasized here the importance of what he was about to say with the word what? Verily, the repeated word verily, verily, verily. And whenever the Lord Jesus says verily, verily, it means what I'm about to say is very important. Everything he says is important, but this means specially important. It means of a truth, of a truth. And then he went on to say that he did not act alone. Whatever he did, he did not do independently of God. In other words, he did not do his own thing, ever. He never did his own thing. He did not ever disobey God or act selfishly. He did nothing of himself, right? Do we do things of ourselves? Yes, all the time. But Jesus Christ never did anything of himself. Everything he did was in total obedience to his father. He never took matters into his own hands independently of his father. There was never any friction whatsoever between God and himself. In fact, if you notice, he said that he, and notice he called himself the father's son. They were horrified that he called God his father, and now he's saying, I am the son. He's the father, I'm the son. So he's continuing his claim of verse 17 that God is his father. But he said that he can do nothing of himself. It was impossible for Jesus to do anything contrary to the father. For he could do nothing without the father. He was perfectly obedient to the father. He only did, it says, what he seeth the Father do. And who can see what the Father does except the Son who is equal with God? Do you and I see what God's doing, firsthand see? No, the reason he could see is because he's God and he was in eternity past with God. Now, in the Greek, this is really emphasized because it says that he did the very same things in the very same manner as his father. That's in the, the, the literal Greek. He was saying that he acted and he behaved and he thought and he spoke. 
And it doesn't say that here, but over in John 14, 10, you know what the Lord says? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. So he, he acted, behaved, thought, and spoke exactly as, as God. The reason is because he is God. He had the very same nature and person as God. You know, the son inherits his nature from his father, right? So he had the same nature and the same person as God. Whatever he did or whatever he said, such as healing on the Sabbath, was always initiated and directed by the father. That's what he's getting at here. The two always work together. Actually, the three always work together. And who am I speaking of? The third, the Holy Spirit. The Godhead always works together. And he gives a reason why he always works together with his father in verse 20, where he says, The father loveth the son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. God loves his son. We know that. God loves his son. So he shows him everything that he does. Furthermore, due to his love for his son, he will show him even greater works than those that he had already performed. Had Jesus performed some great works? Yes. But are greater works ahead that men may marvel? Yes, indeed, they are. Okay, let's move on to that. We have a lot of territory to cover, so we can't get into a lot of details. But read your notes because sometimes I'm going to say something different in the notes than I say here. The Father gives judgment to the Son. Let's look at verses 21 to 23. He goes on and he says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth, judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. You know, I think one of the, another miracle that took place is that throughout this whole sermon, the Jews are totally silent. <laughs> He's saying some fantastic things here, and their, their jaws must have been hanging open, but they don't interrupt and they don't say a word. <clears throat> All right, two of the greater works, you know, the, the Lord had just mentioned that the Father would show greater works. Two of those greater works that the Father has given to the Son are given in verses 21 and 22. And they are that the Son would raise the dead, verse 21, and that he would pronounce judgment, verse 22. The Lord said here, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. This incredible statement, and it is incredible, <clears throat> was either spoken by one who was equal with God or by the most self-deceived egomaniac of all time. Right? He was either equal with God or he was something else when it came to ego. He was claiming absolute power over the dead. <clears throat> he was not only claiming to possess the power to raise the physically dead back to life, as he would demonstrate, you know, with Jairus' daughter and with the widow of Nain's son and with Lazarus and even with himself. But he's also claiming here that he has the power to raise the spiritually dead to everlasting life. To quicken means to make alive, either physically or spiritually. And to quicken, to make somebody alive spiritually or physically is a prerogative of God alone. It's a prerogative of deity alone. 
So that's an amazing statement. And then he went on to claim another soul prerogative of God when he said, The Son quickeneth whom he will. He will save who he chooses to save. That's divine election, isn't it? He'll, choose, he'll save who he chooses. In fact, he had just given a living illustration of this very truth when he healed just one man from a great multitude of impotent folk at the pool of Bethesda. And then not only did the Lord Jesus say that he was equal with God because he has power over life and death, which had to utterly shock his listeners, but in verse 22, he claimed that he also has the Father-given right to judge mankind. You know, I could just picture them. Not only does he say he can resurrect the spiritually, the spiritual and the physical back to life, but now he's saying all judgment is going to be in his hands. Wow. Now, most people, most people, and I believe this is true of even Christians, most people think that uh, the one who will judge the world and the one before whom all men will one day stand on the day of judgment is God, the Father. Most people think that they will stand before God. But you know what? That is not what the Bible teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches. God will judge no man. Those are the Lord's words. It says, God will judge no man, but he hath committed, what's the next word? All judgment to the Son. That's in verse 22. The Lord was pronouncing here, the Lord Jesus was pronouncing his absolute God-given right to pass eternal sentence on every person who has ever or will ever live. Um, and this is supported by other scriptures. It isn't just here. We have, for example, 2 Timothy 4.1, where it says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And then there's 1 Peter 4, 5, Acts 10, 42, etc. I have a bunch of verses if you want to come ask me about that later. There can be no doubt, regardless of what the cults or what false religions or false teachers might say, there can be no doubt when you read this sermon that Jesus Christ claimed to be equal with God, claimed to be God. Even with the claims that he made in this sermon alone, it's obvious that he cannot simply be accepted, as some try to do, as just a good man. You know, some people will say, well, I, he was just a good man, or he was a good teacher, or he was a great prophet. That's not sufficient. You cannot say that. He was e either an evil liar, or an outright lunatic, or absolute lord. There's no middle ground. You cannot take a middle position when it comes to Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You can't say a person who says that is just a good teacher. If he's saying that and he isn't who he says he is, he's not good, period. <laughs> he's out to lunch, he's a lunatic, or he's an outright deceiver and a liar. But we know, of course, that he is Lord. The resurrection of the dead and the judgment are closely related. One day, all the dead, all the dead will be raised bodily. 
all the, all the bodies will be raised out of their graves to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. The saved, those who have accepted him as their Lord and Savior, the saved will stand before him at what is called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. And you can read about that Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 15.10. The saved will stand before Jesus Christ to be judged or I'd rather say to be rewarded for their works. This is not a judgment of salvation because only the saved are going to be, appear there. This isn't a judgment for are you saved or lost, depart from me. No, this is a judgment where our works will either be burned up as wood, hay, or stubble or we will be rewarded for, for our gold, silver, and precious stones. Our works, it's a, a reward ceremony. So all the saved will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, and all the unsaved will stand before Jesus Christ at the what? Great white throne judgment to bow before him in submission before then being sentenced to the eternal lake of fire. Now the purpose for God having given over all judgment to his son is found in the Lord's next words of verse 23 where he says that all men should honor the son even as they honor the father. When all men stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment, he will at long last finally receive the honor which he so rightly deserves from all men. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and every knee will bow before him, and he will receive the honor that he deserves. Yes, amen. The religious rulers of Israel fully believed that they, they were pleasing, and they were honoring God. They really, I think the majority of them really believed that. They were self-deceived, but they believed they were pleasing and honoring God. However, the Lord here was informing them of the fact that they were terribly self-deceived about this when he said, he said uh, at the end of verse 23, He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. You know, again, it's really amazing that they kept silent during this entire sermon. sermon. <clears throat> and so far, he's only, <laughs> we've only looked at five out of his 29 verses. So can you imagine their state by the time he finishes this sermon? He still has a whole lot more to say. So uh, let's look now at the third, the third truth regarding the son's person. And this we'll look at in verse 24. He says again, verily, verily. Now you know this is an important sermon because he uses the words verily, verily, I think a total of three times if I'm not mistaken. All right, he says in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, that's God, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Another proof that Jesus is equal with God is because he has the power over man's eternal destiny. He has the power to save men from death to life. The Lord Jesus, again, as I said emphatically, verily, verily, told his listeners in this verse that anyone who accepted his words and believed that God had sent him would, and notice this, hath, have. Anyone who accepted his words and believed that God sent him, in other words, that he is divine, he came from God, ha would have 
present tense eternal life or everlasting life. You see, possession of eternal life happens at the, at the moment of salvation. You have it, present tense. Possession of everlasting life ensures the believer that he will never, he or she will never, ever be condemned. He will never stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment. I mean, actually, we have eternal life right now. Did you know we will never die? Our person, our identity, our spirit will never die, absent from the body, immediately present with the Lord. Only the body goes to sleep for a while, and even it will be resurrected back to life. But we have eternal life. We don't have to wait till the end of our lives to receive it. We have it right now. And, and so we can know. It's a wonderful thing to know that you have eternal life. You ask people, do you know that you're saved? And you hear people say, well, I hope so. You don't have to hope so. You can know so. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to find out, oh, I made it. You can know right now. He promises that he who believes his words and believes that God sent him from heaven has eternal life. It's that easy. Of course, we do have to understand why he came to earth, and that was to die for our sins. We need to repent of our sins, turn from them, and acknowledge that he is indeed our Savior from sins. But then we receive eternal life, and we will never, ever be condemned to an existence apart from him and apart from God. Okay, then in verses 25 to 30, it's uh, all about the resurrection. So let's look at the Son predicting resurrection for all. Verse 25, where again, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. What has he called himself so far? The Son of God, in verse 25, and now his favorite description of himself, the Son of Man, because he is 100% God and 100% man. All right, verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Let's see, one more verse. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. There are two divisions within this fourth significant truth of Christ's sermon here. First, in verses 25 to 27, he discussed his power to quicken the dead now. In the present, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and what? Now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they, sh- and they that hear shall live. This, when he says, and now is, that is a reference to his power to save men spiritually. Does he have the power to save men spiritually now? Yes, he does. Because the Son has life in himself, just as God The Father has life in himself. The Son can give his life to the spiritually dead who hear his voice. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I give unto them eternal life. Then in verse 27, he, as I said, he used his favorite description of himself. He called himself the son of man. Not only is this, he the son of God, but he came into this world as a man. He walked through life as a human being, and thereby he became experientially knowledgeable about every facet and every fiber of human existence. You know, he, he understands all about what it's like to be a human being. I thought about, you know, one time I used to think, well, it's not really fair because he didn't know what it was like to be married. <laughs> That's one of the... <laughs> no, I, I have a happy marriage. <laughs> but there are a lot of trials in marriage. You all you probably agree with that. But then I thought, oh, that was so stupid of me to say that because, of course, the Lord is married. He's, he's the bridegroom, and he's married to all of us. Oh, I mean, talk about compounded. <laughs> he really has problems. Uh, and then I thought, well, he never had children. Oh, boy, has he got children. <laughs> so he understands everything, everything, everything you think of. He understands the joys, the companionship of human life, as well as the pressures the heartaches, the trials, the temptations, the suffering, the tears. Uh, he even had one of his children go astray, betray him, you know, with a kiss. Uh, he, he, understa- he even understands physical death and the, the pain of physical death, the worst physical death any man could ever experience. And because of this, God gave him the, exo- the authority to execute judgment over man because he was willing to become man. He has the authority to judge man. Then second, in verses 28 and 29, the Lord spoke of the future aspect of his resurrection power when he said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. It's future tense. In the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life, they have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Notice several facts from these uh, words here. What is it that resurrects the dead? What is it? The the voice. It's the voice. It's the word of Jesus Christ which has the power to resurrect the dead. What is this? Is this the voice of Jesus Christ right here? This is the word. Does it have the power to resurrect the spiritually dead? Yes. It's quick and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword this is the this is the word of god right here that resurrects us from being spiritually dead and then one day what he's talking about here is one day everyone will hear his voice everyone who has ever lived and everyone who's ever died will hear his voice and all will be resurrected from the dead furthermore that voice will resurrect uh, as i said all everyone no exception all who are in the graves not a single person who has ever lived i don't care what's happened to their body you know whether it was blown to smithereens all of them will be resurrected and that time that hour is fixed when this will occur does god know that hour is he going to change it no it's fixed it's totally fixed And he says here, men are not to marvel at this. This isn't anything to, you know, say, I never heard this before. This is is just something I don't believe. It's, It's not something that's incredible or foolish or mythological. God does exist. 
God is not dead. God does exist. And he has a plan. And he has a purpose for existence. And his plan and his purposes will take place exactly when he has established for them to take place. And that hour is fixed. And it will come most... The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, is he? Life is not just the result of time and chance. There is, you know, life is not without purpose. It is not, life is not without design. I just look at creation and you know that. It's just common sense. Life is not without meaning. Men are not left without hope and destined to despair and ultimately to rest forever in the dirt. That's not... That's not the case at all. That's not the situation. Life is very, very meaningful and very purposeful and very significant because there is a holy and a good and a true God who reigns and who has a plan. And aren't you glad for that? Man, would we, we would have no purpose. We might as well just all commit suicide <laughs> right now and get it over with if there was no holy, righteous, good God who has a plan. This is just a testing ground, okay? This is a testing period. Let's live it for him and reap the rewards of a life well lived throughout all of eternity. Just don't blow it on this and that and foolish things that don't count. Redeem our time wisely. And we will never regret it. Now in these verses, Jesus was speaking of the bodily resurrection that all men will one day experience. However, there will be two kinds of resurrection. There will be the resurrection of life for those who have done good, it says, and there will be the resurrection of damnation for those who have done evil. Now, make sure you understand that those who have done good, because none doeth good, right? All right, make, make sure you understand that that refers to those who have done good because they obeyed God by believing on his son for their salvation. On the other hand, those who have done evil are the people who have not believed God's way of salvation through his son. So the just will experience the resurrection of life, and the unjust will tragically experience the resurrection of damnation. And none of you in this room want to do that, do you? You don't want to experience that resurrection. So believe God's word about his son and ask him into your heart and life to save you, and he will. And you'll never, ever have to stand before Christ at the great white throne and hear those horrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. Please, and share that truth with everyone you love and everyone you know. Next, the perfect harmony and unity of the father-son relationship is again, as just back in the very first verse of this sermon, verse 19, is again mentioned by the Lord when he emphasized the fact that he does not did not act independently of his father. He said, I can of mine own self do nothing. And then he went on to say that his judgment is just, it is fair, because he did not seek his own will, but the will of the father who sent him. In other words, the Lord Christ's judgment will be fair. It will be just, because as in everything he does, it is the express will of his father. The son's will is to do the father's will because both of them have the same divine nature and, and, and perspective on all things. And so their wills never disagree. 
Therefore, when Jesus on the Sabbath day looked at that Bethesda invalid, when he looked at him, he also looked into the Father's will. And as he did, as he did that, as he looked at what the Father's will was, he, being one in nature with the Father, immediately understood that it was the Father's will for him to heal that man. Sabbath or no Sabbath, that was God's will, not just of himself, his own will. He was telling the Jews that for them to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath was for them to accuse God. That was a challenge to the very will of God. Again, you understand how amazing it is that they're silent, that they didn't just pick up stones and throw at him and stone him to death. I think it shows his authority over them that they stood there during this whole sermon and listened to this. It's amazing. It's a miracle. All right, right now we're going to skip verses 31 to 39, and we're going to go to the fifth significant truth regarding Jesus and his equality with God. And this is what we read about in verses 40 to 47. The son prophesies of Israel's unbelief. Did he know ahead of time Israel was going to reject him? Yes. All right, let's look at verses 40 to 47. He says to them, and ye will not, not you, you cannot, but ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my father's name and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? In these verses... The Lord Jesus is actually giving a prediction of the coming unbelief of Israel. He predicted his own resurrection by the Jews in verse 40 when he says, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And then he went on to say that he does not receive honor from men when God's love is not in them. Do you ever see anybody honoring Jesus Christ if they don't love God and honor God? No, you just don't see that. I receive not honor from men, but I know ye... You that ye have not the love of God in you. The Lord Jesus had come in the name and in the authority of who? Of his Father. That's what he says. And he came with tremendous miracles to prove his claims to deity. Yet the rulers of Israel were rejecting him. And ultimately, as we know, they would reject him as a nation. However, as Jesus predicted in verse 43, when another would come in whose name? The Father's name? No, his own name. When another would come in his own name, him they would receive. Now, over the years since the Lord Jesus walked this earth, the Jews have indeed accepted a number of false messiahs. You can read about two of them in Acts 5. One's name was Thutis, and another was Judas of Galilee. They were false messiahs. And the Jews, a number of Jews, followed them for a while. But ultimately here what he's talking about is that one future day, 
Israel will open up her arms of acceptance to Satan's supreme counterfeit Christ, who we know as the Antichrist. He says, I come in my father's name and you reject me, but one is going to come in his own name and him you're just going to open up with, you know, wide arms to him. And that's exactly true. That's exactly what Israel is headed for. And very soon. The vast majority of first century Jews in places of spiritual leadership did not truly love God. Now, there were exceptions, of course, but the vast majority of them did not truly love God. In fact, they did not even really know God at all. And the proof that they didn't love him or know him was that they did not recognize his character and his, his love and his attributes, his words and his works in his son. If they had known God, they would have known him in his son. But they were too busy, and this is what Jesus says here in verse uh, 44. You know, they want to receive honor one of another. That's what he's talking about. They were too busy trying to uh, gain the praise and honor of their peers and demanding the respect and the reverence of the people to care, really, about receiving the praise of God. The Jewish religious rulers claimed, of course, and this would be true for all of them, the Sadducees as well. Now, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Um, but So they could be included in this, too, when he's talking about um, how Moses wrote of him. They all claimed to believe in the writings of Moses. Yet Jesus here tells them that they did not really accept what Moses wrote. Why? Right, because Moses wrote of him. Can you imagine them thinking, oh, the audacity of this man. I mean, he was just born 30 years ago, and here he's saying Moses wrote about him. He told them that he would not need to one day accuse them before his father because of their unbelief, because someone else would be able to do that. Moses would be able to do that. They claimed that they trusted Moses so much. You know, they really put Moses up on a pedestal. And by the way, let me sidetrack for a minute while this came into my brain. I I know that there are many people who will teach you in Sunday school classes and churches that Moses did not write those first five books of the Bible. Remember when we studied Genesis, we talked about JPD. They have all these other names for who wrote this section and who wrote this and who wrote that. But you know what? If you don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, then you don't believe in Jesus' word because Jesus here said that Moses wrote them. And either Jesus was unknowledgeable about it and didn't didn't know and that makes him not god or he was lying when he said moses wrote so you know you either have to believe that moses wrote it and jesus is true lord or forget the whole thing moses wrote the first five books of the bible and jesus confirms that here so anyway they claim to trust moses but if they truly did they would have believed in him He said, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Those are wonderful words there. It shows us that all of our our study of uh, at least the book of Genesis, we haven't gotten into the other ones. I have to live to be 250 years old every Deuteronomy, Exodus, and all the other ones. But um, we, we see over and over again how many prophecies of Jesus are in the Pentateuch alone. Right? Over and over again. All the way from Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelium. The seed of the woman. You know? Will bruise, fatally bruise the head of the serpent. 
Uh, we have all kinds of wonderful pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. You know, when Abraham sacrificed Isaac and, and uh, we have um, Melchizedek and the high priesthood, all that is a picture of Christ with a Passover lamb, the life of Joseph. We have manna from heaven, the rock that was smitten, all the various sacrificial offerings which pictured Christ, the whole tabernacle and all of its furnishings is a picture of Christ, the priesthood. Everything. I could go on and on. All of those things, Moses was writing of Jesus. So naturally, if the Jews refused to believe what Moses wrote about him, neither would they believe Christ's own words about himself. So the Lord's prediction here is really a very sad one because it was, he was saying that in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, including her own scriptures, Israel as a nation would not accept God's son. She would reject her own long-awaited Messiah, and we know that that prediction indeed did come true. Okay, let's move now to the second part of our outline and look at the five testimonies to son's royal person. Now, the word witness is one of the key words of John's gospel. He uses the word witness 47 times in his gospel. The five witnesses that the Lord Jesus now calls to the witness stand in verses 31 to 39, give testimony to the validity of all that he has just claimed in those five significant truths. And again, we go back to the fact that five is the number of grace, right? We have five truths about his person and his equality with God, and now we have five witnesses. Those witnesses are, these are the ones he's going to call to the witness stand, to say, is everything I said true? And those witnesses all say, yes, everything you said is true. They are his own words, John the Baptist, his own works, God the Father, and the Old Testament scripture. And those are some pretty powerful witnesses. Let's look at his own words, first of all, in verse 31, uh, where it says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. What he was saying there, or what he was not saying there, was that his claims about himself were not true. He wasn't saying his claims were not true. Rather, what he was saying is that if he alone bore witness of himself and there were no other witnesses to confirm his claims, then Israel could disregard his, his claims as they could say they were false. They could judge them as false if he was the only witness there was. If, for example, there was no witness from the scripture at all regarding his identity as the Messiah, then he would disqualify. And we'd all agree with that. If the Old Testament scripture did not verify who Jesus was, we'd disregard what he's saying here, wouldn't we? If God didn't agree and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, we could disregard if God wasn't a witness for who Jesus is. So that's what he's saying here. Furthermore, besides the need for other witnesses, the, um, the Mosaic law, and you know the Lord never, he, he might have broken man's laws, but he never broke the Mosaic law, and the Mosaic law required at least two witnesses as proof of any given situation. So, uh, so he came here not only... Um, to present for, to them two wit one witness, two but two witnesses. I can't spit that out right. He's going to bring them more than two. You know how he always does exceeding abundantly above everything that is asked or thought. So instead of just giving them two or three witnesses, how many is going to bring to the witness stand? A total of five. Well, four extra beside his own. 
And his own words, by the way, are a testimony of who he is. And the Jews knew that because um, never any man spake like he spoke. All right, so he's the first witness. And then we have John the Baptist in verses 32 to 35. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He, meaning John, was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. It was natural for the Lord to mention John the Baptist as his next witness here because John was the forerunner of himself. John was the uh, herald of the Messiah who had officially declared to the nation that Jesus was indeed her Messiah. Remember when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He even referred to the Lord Jesus as the Lord in uh, John 1.23, I think it was. So John's witness of Christ was true because John himself was a fulfillment of God's prophecy, wasn't he? I mean, John the Baptist was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a way for our God, our Lord and our God. That's speaking of Jesus. So he's the first one. Now, the religious rulers had already, John at this point in time is in prison. But uh, before this, the religion, before he was in prison, the religious rulers had sent a delegation from Jerusalem to interrogate the Baptist. So they knew firsthand that he had indeed uh, borne witness to who Jesus was as the promised Messiah. And they, you know, Israel rejoiced in his light for a while, didn't they? You know, he was a novelty for a while. But you notice while he's in prison, nobody lifts a hand to help him. So they have, uh, he was an interesting and entertaining character, but they did not want to receive his message of repentance, align themselves up with his standards of righteousness, or accept his testimony regarding Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. Now when I say that, I'm speaking again of the leadership of Israel. Of course, we know many people, individual people, did believe John's word about Christ. <clears throat> All right, so our first witness was the Lord's words. Then John the Baptist, the third witness he calls to the witness stand is his works. So let's look at verse 36 for that where he says, But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Even if the Jewish leaders refused Christ's own testimony and the testimony of John the Baptist he says he has even a greater witness than that of John. He has the works which the Father had given him to finish. He had the incredible miracles which uh, gave ample testimony of his divine authority and power, right? Just think of some of the things we've already looked at. We haven't even gotten to when he feeds the 5,000 or, or walks on water or stills a storm or raises Lazarus from the We haven't even gotten to any of those. But all of his miracles were evidence that the Father had sent him because they demonstrated his supreme authority over all aspects of life and death. And Satan, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, exercised demons already. 
And these are, this is authority and power which only God himself possesses. So his miracles are a witness, a testimony as to who he is, that he is equal with God. Remember what Nicodemus said? He had to admit, no man can do these miracles except God be with him. And Nicodemus was an unbeliever at that point in time. Okay, then we have the testimony of God the Father. And that's in verses 37 and 38. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. God also testified of Christ throughout the Old Testament scriptures, of course. He testified of who Jesus is. If the Jews here, and also we know he's already done it at his baptism, when God spoke from heaven and gave testimony. He would do that three times. But mainly here, because the Jews might not have heard that, he was speaking of God's testimony of him through his word, the Old Testament. Um, If the Jews had really known God, and if his words, God's words, were truly abiding in their hearts, then Jesus says it again, he repeats it, they would have recognized God in him. And this is what he meant when he said, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he has sent him ye believe not. All right, we could develop that, but we're out of time, so let's look at the last witness, the scripture, and for this we'll look at verse 39, um, where it says, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, And they are they which testify of me. We've already heard that Moses wrote of him. Now he's saying the whole Old Testament. Because, you know, at this point in time, the New Testament hasn't been written. Now he's saying the scriptures, the whole Old Testament testifies as to who I am. So his final witness as to his messiahship and deity is the word of God itself. The religious rulers studied, studied, studied the scriptures. You know, that was their pride and joy. They studied the scriptures with great diligence because they believed that through a lifetime of such study and a meticulous adherence to the law, that they could gain eternal life. You know, that they would be seen as righteous enough and pleasing enough to God that he would let them into heaven. Yet Bible study is not an end in itself, is it? I mean, it's great and it's wonderful, but it is not an end. Rather, it is a means to an end. And the end is knowing the one about whom the scriptures speak. And who do they speak of? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the study or search of scripture does not in itself, as I just said, bring about eternal life. But it does point the way to eternal life, which is through faith in its author. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the theme and the subject of the scripture, but he is its author. The Old Testament, which the scribes and the Pharisees prided themselves on knowing so well, could have very clearly, very easily told them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. If they had really cared enough to investigate his credentials and all the messianic prophecies and all the types that he fulfilled. But they did not investigate these matters. Or if they did, they ignored all the evidence of his person because their minds were already made up. You know, don't bother me with the facts. Have you ever met anybody like that? 
Don't bother me with the facts. I've already made up my mind about Jesus. They refused to come to Jesus for life, and they stubbornly refused to listen, not to just two or three witnesses, but to five wonderful, solid witnesses. Now, I want to end by just going back for one second to verse 38, where Jesus said, And ye have not his words abiding in you. The word of God must abide in a person for him to know God in a personal way. And two things are necessary for the word of God to be abiding in us. Number one, it must be accepted as whose word? God's. It doesn't just contain God's word. It is God's word. And I hope you see through this study, every jot and tittle is God's word. Nothing is by accident or coincidence or just, it's all got such purpose. We've seen that over and over again. Even the little is's and the numbers and everything is significant. So for God's word to abide in you, first of all, you have to accept that it is God's word. And secondly, it has to be in us, not just around us or among us, not just on our laps or on our coffee tables or on our desks or in our church pews or even just on our tongues or sounding in our ears. That's not necessarily abiding in us. We could speak, you know, Satan knows more scripture than any of us. He probably has the whole book memorized by now. The word of God must be in us. If something is not within, we cannot say that it is abiding in a person. Also, to be abiding, it must not only be allowed to come into our minds and hearts, but to be clung to. It must, it must stay with us. You know, abiding. Don't you get that picture? Remaining, abiding. He's the vine, we're the branches, and what are we to do? We're to abide. We have to stay. We have to remain. I'm not saying we have to keep ourselves saved. I'm just saying to be abiding in his word, we need to be doing what we do here. Come week by week and day by day. Uh, Just like manna had to come down from heaven daily to sustain and nourish the people. We need to be in the word daily. That's It has to keep renewing us. It's not enough to just eat once a week, is it? Physically? Same thing spiritually. We must be fed daily. When the word of God truly abides in a person, that person naturally then accepts what God says, and he lives as God says. And that person who's abiding in God's word is going to believe in God's son. You see, it would be impossible to accept what God says and not accept what he says about his son. To reject his words about his son is to reject God's word, period. It's to reject God himself. And that's, I just wanted to finish on that little note about abiding in his word because that's what this Bible study is all about. Thank you for your patience. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for the many wonderful truths we've heard in this sermon. Thank you that the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, does nothing of himself. What a lesson to us. May we be followers of that truth that we might not do anything of ourselves not our will be done but thine be done lord help us to do nothing independently of your will thank you that you love the son and that you have shown him your whole plan and purpose and that you have shown 
we who are your sons, your children by adoption, that you have also shown us your plan and your purpose. Thank you for that so that we don't have to live a meaningless, despairing life, that we can know you and know for sure where we're going when we die. And in the meantime, we can live that wonderful, full, abundant, joyful life here on earth. Lord, if anyone has lost the joy of her salvation, I pray that this sermon, your words, have pricked her heart and that she will have that that joy sparked and come to life again within her because to live for you is such a joyful experience, Lord. Help each of us to redeem our time wisely. And, Lord, if there is one here who does not know for sure that she will not one day stand at the great white throne judgment and hear those horrible words, depart from me, I never knew you, and then experience the resurrection of of damnation in the lake of fire, I pray, Lord, that she would take care of this most vital issue of life and death and eternity right today, this morning. This is the day of salvation. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And we know the angels will rejoice in heaven over another precious soul saved, and we will rejoice with her down here. And now I ask, Lord, that you would go with each woman, give her a blessed week, help her to be light and salt for you, and bring her back next week, we pray, with a friend. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you.